Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast with Dr. Lance Miller. Each week, we bring you interviews with the top minds in the orthodontic profession in order to heighten your expertise, boost your motivation, and raise your skills. Join us as we help doctors take their practices and their lives to the next level. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lance Miller. Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Miller. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I'm thrilled that you're here with us. This is the week of the AAO meeting in Los Angeles, the American Association of Orthodontists, and I will be there on Saturday and Sunday. I'm going to take the red eye home on Sunday night, so it'll be a short trip for me, but I'm excited to see many of you, to connect with you. So uh, if we run into each other, you know, come up and say hi. I'd love to uh, meet as many listeners of the podcast as I can while I'm out in Los Angeles uh, and hopefully get to connect with some old friends as well, uh, get a little bit of continued education and take care of some meetings and other things I have set up um, with people, kind of some busy business weekend uh, for sure. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Trista Felty, uh, who's going to talk with us a little bit more about this topic of organized dentistry. So this is a really good episode uh, to be airing the week of the AAO. Uh, She's going to tell us a little bit more about how to get involved, why we should be getting involved with organized dentistry and orthodontics. I think you're going to enjoy hearing her perspective and maybe think about things a little bit differently in terms of, you know, what our involvement and our role uh, in this whole process really should be. Before we get into the interview, I wanted to just share with you guys a few things that have been on my mind recently, some things I've been reading and thinking about. Uh, As you know, I'm always thinking about financial planning and some of these legal and financial aspects of our practice. Uh, One article that was published recently on uh, kitkes.com, K-I-T-C-E-S, this is a financial planner. Uh, The article is called How the Financial Planning Process Differs for the Young Client. It's not simpler, but different complexities. This article I thought was really interesting. It talks a lot about how older uh, investors, uh, like I say, this guy is a, is a financial planner, and he's writing a blog really for other financial planners. And he talks about how older investors come and they have lots of assets. And so a lot of the financial planning involves what to do with all of these assets and how to invest them in asset allocation, insurance, uh, etc. But for younger doctors and younger investors, uh, a lot more of the focus is on cash flow, right? How to deploy our cash flow, how much goes to taxes, how much goes to savings, how much goes to debt reduction, how much goes to spending, what are the insurance needs. And he points out that a lot of these things are changing really dramatically, right? As our situation changes, our families change, our jobs change. Uh, Our net worth is changing rapidly when we're younger. All of these things mean that we have to constantly be revisiting some of these issues over and over and over and how for uh, a young doctor or a young investor, uh, having a plan and revisiting these things you know, frequently uh, becomes very important. So that's an article I think uh, I'll put a link to it here in the show notes, uh, but that's an article I would check out a little bit to think about some of the things that um, you, know, you need to be addressing. One of those, uh, which I've been working on a little bit this spring, is estate planning, everyone's favorite topic. Um, super exciting. You know, I'm not a financial planner. I'm certainly not an attorney of any kind, but it's been about five years since we've worked on our estate planning. And uh, I just thought I would remind you guys that this is something, one of those things that we don't like to address. It's one of these important but non-urgent tasks, right, uh, that need to get addressed. And I've, and I've 
pulled out a book that I read a few years ago. You should check this book out. It's called Beyond the Grave by Gerald Condon. This is a book that is you can read with kind of this morbid fascination. He kind of puts out all of these like horror stories of things gone wrong where people try to leave money to you know, with their kids or someone else and someone else gets the money um, through some weird legal loophole. So you'll read it and, and be kind of horrified. And it's like looking at a you know, train wreck where you can't look away. And at the same time, you're learning some of these uh, you know, estate planning basics. So Beyond the Grave, Gerald Condon, I would recommend. And then another book I've been reading is called Living Trusts for Everyone. Uh, this is by Ronald Farrington Sharp. And it talks a little bit you know, he's a, he's a big advocate of putting your assets into living trusts to avoid probate. So, you know, the point here and what I'd love to just remind you guys of is to revisit your estate plan or if you don't have one set up to go ahead and put that on your to-do list for 2019. Uh, it's the sort of thing that uh, if your situation has changed, if your net worth has changed, if your family situation has changed, certainly if you or your spouse uh, have been divorced, I think this becomes extraordinarily important to understand how these assets will flow in the event of your uh, eventual demise. So, you know, something to revisit, uh, just a, a, a friendly reminder to uh, call your attorney and uh, get your uh, estate plan updated so that it's current and then go and get all of your, make sure all of your assets are titled properly uh, and that all of the beneficiaries on all of your accounts are designated properly. Uh, sometimes you might say, oh, I've got this set up in my will, but then you know your retirement account has a different beneficiary on it, hopefully not like an ex-spouse, uh, and they're going to pay that directly no matter what the will says. So anyway, go and revisit this. Spend a little time in 2019 getting your estate plan up to date. Uh, that's my, my public service announcement for today. And we'll jump into our interview with Dr. Felty. Dr. Trista Felty was born and raised in Pennsylvania, where she attended Villanova University and was a member of the varsity swim team. She attended Temple University for her dental degree and orthodontic training. During dental school, she swam the English Channel as part of a three-person relay team to raise money for MS research. She met her husband in dental school and moved to his hometown in British Columbia after finishing training. She is a part-time faculty member in the Graduate Orthodontic Program at the University of British Columbia and is in a private practice partnership in Abbotsford, British Columbia. She dedicates a considerable portion of her time serving on various dental and orthodontic committees and boards, both on the local and national levels. She currently holds a position on the board of directors for the PCSO and serves on the AAO Council for New and Younger Members, where she acts as a liaison to the AAO Board of Trustees. She's a passionate advocate for having more female and younger members hold various positions in organized dentistry in recognition of the changing landscape of the dental profession. Trissa loves orthodontics and enjoys a camaraderie among her colleagues. When she isn't focusing on teeth, she enjoys being with her three daughters, her husband, who is a general dentist, and their huge Bernese mountain dog. She also loves traveling and seeing all the world has to offer. Dr. Felty, welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. Thanks, Lance. I'm happy to be here. We're really excited to uh, have you on the podcast today, and I've got a, I've got a couple of questions kind of prompted by this introduction we've heard here. The first maybe is one that uh, our listeners will have is, I didn't know we allowed Canadians in the AAO. Yeah, so I feel like I'm kind of like feeding the system a bit because I'm technically American, but I live in Canada, and um, I'm not officially full Canadian yet. I'm applying for my citizenship now, but... Um, Yes. Yeah, so since Canada and the U.S. are both in the AAO as 
full active members. So all the Canadians um, are full members of the AO. Um, we pay dues just like Americans do. We get a slight discount because our dollar is worth crap. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> that, but pretty much, and we're assessed a cap and everything too. So yeah, so we're full members and I believe they're the incoming trustee from GLAO is Canadian. So he will be the second Canadian president of the AO in 10 years when he becomes president. Good. That's good to know. And full disclosure to our listeners, I was also born in Canada. And <laughs> although I'm a naturalized United States citizen, you know, I, I have a little bit of that connection there. Uh, we also have another connection here, Trista, which is that you know, Villanova beat North Carolina in the national championship uh, not that long ago in yes. a very painful loss. Um, I'm sure there was rejoicing in your house that night while we were crying ourselves to sleep. Yeah, I mean, come on, though. It was one of the best probably championship games ever, I think. It was a really exciting game. Um, but yeah, it's completely it lost here. No one watches men's college basketball. So my patients just think I'm crazy <laughs> when I come in wearing all my, you know, Villanova gear the next day. They're kind of like, what is going on? That's right. Yeah. The best I can get is like the Toronto Raptors and Kyle Lowry went to Villanova. So that's like the only connection I can get out of my patients. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I guess we're both, we're both out this year. So yes, um, it, unfortunately. You know, it is what it is here. Um, cool. Well, we've got you on the podcast today to talk a little bit about organized dentistry, the role of the American Association of Orthodontists, um, the opportunities that I think exist for uh, orthodontists to participate in kind of some of these bigger issues. You know, our, our, our normal reaction to these kind of bigger global issues is just to whine about them to each other on Facebook groups. Um, but hopefully we're going to hear today some really proactive kind of positive things that our you know, listeners could be doing to help themselves and to help their practices and really ultimately to help our patients by you know, delivering you know, the best quality care and the best information to them. So I, I think we should start by you explaining to us a little bit about uh, you know, the AAO, how it works, if, if you want to get in, involved in leadership, what the different kind of levels are and, and how they all kind of interact with each other because I think there's a lot of people that don't really understand even the basics of, of how the organization is put together. Yeah, sure. So I do think it's important for members to know how their professional organization is structured because that's the way that you're going to be able to affect change properly. And so with the AAO, obviously, as a national organization, it includes the U.S. and Canada. It's broken down into eight constituencies, which are geographic regions. So I belong to PCSO, the Pacific Coast Society of Orthodontists. And then those constituencies are further broken down into components, which represent the state or province that you belong to. So then again, I'm in the BC component. And so you can kind of volunteer at your local level in your component or at the constituency level um, or at the national level. Um, in terms of the governance structure within the AAO, you have the board of trustees and the house of delegates, which are kind of your big governing bodies. Both of those systems are elected from the constituencies. So each constituency elects a trustee. Um, the trustees serve for 10 years and eventually become secretary treasurer, vice president, president of the AO. The House of Delegates are elected from the constituencies based on population. So one constituency might have more delegates just if there's more orthodontists within their area. And then you'll have councils, committees, and task forces are the ones that kind of do the more detailed work or kind of timed work, depending on what the area of focus is. And those are other positions that you can um, volunteer and get involved with. 
So what prompted you to get involved in this? Uh, you know, I, I don't think that everyone is rushing to do this. What, what about this kind of uh, opportunity intrigued you? Well, when I moved to British Columbia, I didn't know anyone personally or professionally outside of, you know, my husband and my in-laws. And so I think one of the reasons I got involved, I started going to the BC Society of Orthodontist meetings was I wanted to network and I wanted to meet people. And so kind of about a year into those meetings, they were looking for a new representative for the PCSO board to represent BC. And I kind of said, you know what, I'll, I'll give that a go. I don't, you know, I want to try it. And um, it's honestly been such an amazing experience. And I think part of it is you just meet so many passionate people that are excited about the profession and, you know, want to keep moving it forward. Yeah. Yeah. And then that got me involved in a whole bunch of other stuff in a way too. Um, but yeah, but it's been a good ride so far. Yeah. I guess if uh, you want something done, you give it, give it to a busy person. And it sounds like, uh, you know, it sounds like you've got a lot of balls in the air here. You know, when, when orthodontists talk about the AAO, they do it in, in, in different ways. I think we are proud to be orthodontists. I think we have a sense of pride in our profession. And I think sometimes people are frustrated that the AAO isn't doing exactly what they want it to do for them or for their practice. Uh, and maybe that stems a little bit from a misunderstanding. What do you view kind of the role of the AAO and, and how you know, individual orthodontists should kind of relate to the AAO? Yeah, so I believe that our professional organizations, whether they're local or national, you know, they exist um, as a platform and as a structure for us to affect change within our profession. I don't believe that they exist to just do all the work for us. You know, I think that we have a lot of passionate people that are involved and are trying to move things forward, but we have to be willing to, at a minimum, pay our dues if we want to see change or pay the cap assessment if you want to try to start fighting against these other companies that are out there. Um, and then to go beyond that, you have to be willing to kind of volunteer some time to get involved and help make that change as well. I think that, you know, there's this mentality when questioning membership. And I do think that younger generations do question their memberships. We're not as joiners as I think previous generations are. We don't just automatically do it because that's what we're supposed to do. But I think when you question membership, I don't necessarily like the mentality of, uh, well, what's in it for me? Or what benefits have I gotten just this one year? Because to me, it's a little bit about, you know, what can you do for your profession? Not so much what is my professional organization doing for me every single year. And so I think that, you know, paying your dues is your voice and it's your contribution to the profession and keeping it moving forward. And so if, you know, at the end of the day, we don't have the members there, we're not going to see a change. And so I kind of look at it as like an insurance policy. When I'm paying, you know, my insurance for my practice overhead, I'm paying my dues as a way to kind of ensure that we have a large and strong collective voice when issues arise. And I think that, you know, all of the orthodontists out there, like I say, we, we take a lot of pride in our profession. And I think a large part of what we're doing, I guess, could be considered in our own self-interest. But I also think that in looking at, you know, the different options that are out there for patients to receive care, I do feel, and I think most people feel, that getting orthodontic care from a specialty trained orthodontist is really ideal for our patients as well and allows us to kind of deliver to them, you know, really the best that, that orthodontics has to offer. You know, whether there's room for other tiers below that is, is probably a discussion that's beyond the scope of this interview. But, but ultimately, I think that's, you know, what we're trying to do. And, and I do think that 
being part of something bigger than ourselves, I think hopefully helps to move that forward, not just for ourselves, but also for our patients. Yes, I, I agree. And I think that that's one thing where there's been a large misconception with the cap in the sense that I think a lot of people initially viewed it as marketing for them as an individual. And it's really not meant to get patients in your chair. To me, it's meant to kind of fight the education that patients are receiving from direct to consumer companies or from necessarily the GP office down the street. And it's to kind of re-educate patients that what a specialist is and why they should be seeing a specialist, what that value is there. So that might not translate to a straight patient in your chair because essentially it's combating some misinformation that's already out there in the marketplace. And we're doing it at a significantly, significantly smaller budget. I mean, if you think of the cap assessment being, you know, 600 to a thousand dollars in terms of marketing, I mean, I spend way more than that in marketing for my own office. And we're talking about, you know, on a national level, right? So I think if people can kind of look at that and, and kind of say, okay, well, how much, what percentage of my budget am I spending in marketing for me? And then the AO is not spending that marketing to get you a new patient. They're spending that marketing to help re-educate patients in general. Yeah, that's like 1% of my marketing budget for my orthodontic <laughs> practice that I'm spending, <laughs> I guess, on, on a cap assessment. And more to the point, now we have these new entrants into the marketplace that are spending tremendous amounts of money. More money is, you know, we thought that some of the direct-to-consumer from the orthodontic bracket companies and from the, you know, doctor-driven clear liner companies was a lot of money. Now we have these kind of new, you know, whatever you want to call it, do-it-yourself telemedicine companies that are spending money that just seems like astronomical amounts. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think the council and communications figured out that if you really wanted to go toe to toe with some of these bigger companies, um, members would need about a $10,000 assessment, which I mean, there are people that would be willing to pay because they would say, hey, well, then let's do this and let's do it for a couple years and be done, you know, because then if you're going toe to toe every day, it's a much different fight, as you will, than if you're kind of advertising on a much smaller, essentially like shoestring budget compared to what they're dealing with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be interested in, uh, do, maybe not for the rest of my career, but I, I, yeah. uh, I, you can, you can put me down for five years, uh, you know, at, at 10,000 and we'll kind of see where we are and, and reassess. But I, I agree. I mean, the, the opportunity, you know, is there, I think that's a really interesting perspective as well. So maybe backing up a little bit on this issue of direct to consumer marketed orthodontic products, you know, what, is your take on what the role of organized orthodontics can be uh, and what isn't the role? And, and, you know, I think this is one of the hot topics, you know, that people, when they, when they get into their complaining mode about, uh, you know, the status of things is uh, what the AAO is doing. What do, you, what do you think that is being done, that should be done, and maybe what, what shouldn't be done? Yeah, I think it's really important for members to be involved locally because that's when they're going to see this stuff happen first, right? The AAO has got to get it kind of a little bit later um, and any national organization would just because you kind of need to be in the thick of it. And I think this is one area where orthodontists, we haven't done as great of a job. Like oral surgeons, for example, have done an excellent job at being involved on their dental boards um, or within the ADA. And I know a lot of people will say like, there's no point in me keeping my ADA membership, for example. And I can understand that, right? It's driven to benefit the largest segment of their members, which are general dentists. But the same goes to say, you know, when we talk about like not having a seat at the table, if you're not going to join, you're not even in the building anymore. So you have no idea what's going on. So not only do you not have a seat to have a voice, like you don't even understand now what's being talked about. And so, you know, in BC this past year at our local BC Dental Association, the president was an oral surgeon. 
And we went through some specialty bylaw changes. And I think part of the reason that the stuff remained still relatively strict was because there was an oral surgeon who was sitting there every day during those discussions and, you know, had the interests of specialists at his heart as well. And so I think that we need to get involved on the dental level in um, our local areas to find out when these changes are happening and then making sure we're contacting, whether it's the constituency or the AO nationally, to get them involved and have them present when these meetings are being discussed. And I know like Sean Murphy, who's AO general counsel, has gone to a lot of states. I think he's been traveling like crazy. But I think having him there when he understands the issues going on, I think his voice carries a lot of weight. And I think when you have someone representing the AO and not just an orthodontist as an individual standing there at these meetings complaining, because that's what it looks like. It looks like we're complaining and we're, well, you know, it's hurting our bottom line. But really, if we're trying to say that this is in the best interest of our patients and of the public, then to have someone from the AO and say, hey, look, I'm here representing 10,000 orthodontists, that's a lot bigger of a deal and it's a lot more effective, I feel. And so I feel that the AO has done, you know, as best that they can right now in terms of trying to go up against some of these companies. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily know. I mean, I know I don't read every single email I get. I'm sure there's lots of people that, you know, you just see it and kind of, okay, I'm going to delete it. But if you go through, I think they're trying to get the information out there in terms of what they're doing. And I think we also have to remember that in some areas, they can't legally disclose what's happening. While things are pending, you know, they're prohibited from talking about it. So just because maybe we're not hearing about all the details, um, I think it's more just kind of trusting that these different councils are doing the work that they're doing, that Sean's doing the work that he's been doing, and kind of giving them a little bit of credit for kind of what they're getting done, at least so far. So you said that, you know, the that organized dentistry and organized orthodontics is a platform or a structure for us, the members, to kind of make a change. And, you know, if someone hears that and says, yeah, I'd, I'd like to do that, what, what are the th- ways in which you would think that they could get involved? What are kind of the, some of the first steps? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, it's kind of a matter of, I think, looking at yourself and, and your day-to-day life. I know everyone's pretty busy, but seeing, you know, what things would be the best options for you. So do you want to travel? Because if you're going to volunteer at the national level, you might be going to St. Louis to AAO headquarters. And does that work for you? Or do you want to stay local and have, you know, meetings in the nearby town? And so some of it's time commitment, some of it's a matter of just kind of what you want to be doing. But I think, you know, if you just go to your exec, wherever that is, whether it's at your regional group or a local group, and just say, hey, I, I want to get involved and I want to volunteer. I mean, I know we're always looking for people. And there are times that we don't necessarily have a spot immediately, but we're trying to be better. I know, at least in the PCSO, of kind of keeping a database so that when an opening comes comes around, we have this group of people that we can go to. Because uh, I think everyone gets fired up after a meeting or after an event, and then everyone wants to volunteer. And sometimes there's not something immediately, but there will be in a month or two. And I think we're also looking at ways within the PCSO of kind of making leadership positions and volunteer positions more accessible to everyone. So having shorter term limits, um, having, you know, volunteer opportunities that maybe are just like a one-off. Maybe you just want to help with an annual session event. Maybe not, you know, get involved for six years, for example. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you know, or maybe do something where there's more like job sharing where people can kind of tag team and say, hey, well, you know, I'm game to do this, but I don't know if I can commit to every meeting. So I want to do it with someone and we're going to make sure we're both up to date. So I think kind of I think the more members we get pushing for volunteer opportunities, the more it will force organizations to either create them or to kind of take a more critical look on how their organization is structured to help accommodate them. 
Right. You mentioned, I think, one of the big objections, obviously, which is time. And, you know, you've got three young kids, you've got, uh, you know, an orthodontic practice, you know, which we haven't even really talked at all about in this interview. But tell us a little bit, I guess, now about your practice. We kind of skipped over that. And then how you balance, um, you know, all of these things and and what advice you'd have for someone who's trying to do everything that you do to have a family and a practice and be involved in organized dentistry. Yeah. So I got involved with my current partnership because when I moved to Canada, I had to redo all my licensing here. And I really just was looking for an associateship position. And I think I would have been happy doing that for the rest of my life. But when I moved here, there was not an opportunity for that. And um, so I started my own practice essentially out of my husband's office. And I was working there when I got approached by another orthodontist in town who was renegotiating his lease space and um, couldn't stay in his current building. And so he kind of, you know, was like, "Ah, I don't really want to do this all over again now at this point in my career, but I'm not really ready to retire. And so we combined both of our practices into a new location, which was about four years ago. And we're 50-50 partners. And um, Peter has been amazing as a partner. And we didn't work together for a single day before we joined. So I know some people would think that's crazy. (laughs) Um, But, you know, we we talked about it a lot and it was kind of a let's make it work and let's do it. And I think when you go in with the attitude of you want to give more than you're taking away, you can make a partnership really work well. And I have to say, you know, I give Peter a lot of credit because I don't know as the more experienced doctor, um, he really kind of, you know, let me do some changes to the office and, you know, start practicing different things. And he was very, you know, like, okay, let's go. Let's go do it. Um, You know, he wasn't like, well, I've never done that before and I don't really want to. So um, we have some great staff members that have helped kind of keep us both aligned. So when we're, you know, treating patients since we co-treat, you know, our staff is really good at being like, you know, is this where you want to go with this? Or, you know, this person's doing something else and they kind of help keep us recentered and make sure that, you know, we're staying consistent for the patient's sake as well to make sure that we're they're getting through treatment, you know, as fast as they can. So yeah, so because I'm in a partnership, I have been, you know, I do have that opportunity where um, I can ask Peter, hey, can I swap days? I have a meeting or I need to be out of town. So there's a little bit less effect on my, you know, on my business side if I need to take a week off or I need to take a long weekend to go do volunteering opportunities. So I have been blessed with that sense. But yeah, the PCSO has also been amazing. You know, I had two babies while I've been serving on the PCSO board of directors and on Conum. And I'm not alone in that because in Conum, in just the past three years that I've been on that council, there have been four babies born um, to members on that council. So you can do it. And I think it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like planning to have kids in terms of planning to volunteer where you're never ready to have kids. There's always like one last trip you want to take and you think you're going to be more prepared than you actually are. And you dive in and, you, and it's fine. And I think the same way with volunteering, you know, you dive into it and you'll find this great support structure and they will help you no matter what you're going through because you can't plan every step of your life. So something's going to come up, you know, you're going to have maybe a, a job opportunity that comes up, a spouse moves and you need to move or now you're going to buy a practice or renovate, but there's always kind of something we're all really, really busy. So I think if you want to volunteer and it's something that interests you, I would say to, to give it a try. You know, it doesn't mean you're committed to it forever. And if you find that, you know, hey, it's too much, then, you know, it's fine to step away too. But you won't ever know until you kind of get in there. Yeah, I think that's a super good advice because I, I do think that, you know, that is probably one of the biggest objections, right? Is that people are kind of nervous about committing, especially when they're not exactly sure what they're committing to. I think another objection that people might have, you know, as they're driving in their car listening to this is, 
you know, maybe if they are, especially, you know, a, a younger member, you know, is that they think they're going to show up at one of these meetings and it's going to be all these old white guys that don't really want to hear what you have to say. Maybe speak a little bit in terms of what opportunities there are for women, minorities, younger orthodontists, uh, people, millennials, people with different perspectives and, and how that has been received in, in your uh, experience. Yeah, so I think we really have to stop thinking that young equals inexperienced and older equals experienced because I think it works against both sides of the coin because there's younger members who are very experienced with leadership and it might not necessarily be in dentistry, but it might be in other you know aspects of their life and who know a lot about what's going on in the dental community or in their professional organization. And I think that there's also lots of members that are more seasoned practitioners who maybe never got involved when they were younger and are looking to. And I, I've heard from a few who are like, yeah, I'm kind of hesitant because I just feel like when I walk in there as like a quote unquote newbie, everyone's going to expect me to know all this stuff that I don't know. And so then they're also not going back to volunteer <laughs> because they feel like, you know, they're going to come up to me with all these questions that I have no answers for. Um, so I think that the other advantage is that the lack of knowledge sometimes or the newness of someone coming in is a really valuable asset because you can look at things very critically because you're not jaded, you're not biased, you haven't been through it before. And I think those are some of the most valuable conversations you can have when you have someone who's new come in and say, well, can someone explain to me exactly why we're doing it the way we're doing it? Because it's just not making sense to me. And sometimes taking a look back and you're like, yeah, you know what, actually, I don't know why we're doing it this way anymore. But it's just kind of the way it's been. And everyone's just gone with it. No one's really questioned it before. So I think it's a very valuable thing to have new people and diversity among boards has been shown to be a very effective, you know, thing for decision making and creativity. And in terms of the diversity issue, yeah, I do think that there's a lot of members who feel that, you know, AO governance or their local governance isn't reflective of them as the membership. And I think that this is something that will be talked about more um, as governance changes, because right now I think there's some talk among different constituencies about merging. Um, to be a little bit more effective for members and to be more effective with their money and their dues. And if there's a merger of constituencies, then obviously governance is going to have to change because the current structure we have won't be supportive in that. And right now, the way a lot of stuff is, the constituents elect a person to a council or to as the trustees. And so it's hard to say to a constituency, hey, you're up next to elect someone, but you have to elect a female or you have to elect a minority. So what ends up happening is that you get kind of a, a more uniformed look in your membership uh, governance structure. And we need to be um, cognizant of that and find ways that we can elect, you know, membership at large to diversify our boards. And that goes for gender, that goes for race, that goes for age. And, you know, I sat in the British Columbia Dental Association, they have a director at large, which essentially is a member who's a full voting member of that board who's within five years of graduation. You don't have to have any prerequisite to sit on that in that position. You apply, you're passionate, you know, go for it. And they get a full vote. And I think that's how it how it needs to be at some of our levels in the AO governance, where we need to look critically at, you know, kind of who's representing everyone and then say, well, who do we still need on this board to make it a bit more reflective of our demographics? I will say, though, that um, everyone I've dealt with in terms of organized uh, dentistry and orthodontics is very receptive. I've never, you know, once I've been involved, I've never felt like, oh, my voice has been discounted as a younger member. 
Uh, I think everyone's been really, really appreciative of, you know, having me present if I'm, you know, kind of the lone person there who's a female or a younger member and, you know, being able to voice kind of what I know. And I think they've taken that to heart. And I think, you know, most of the boards are really receptive of, of trying to change. We've hit on some of these themes, I think, as we've talked, but one kind of last, I'm, I'm trying to think here in my mind is, well, what are the listeners thinking? Like, well, how are they objecting to like doing this? Uh, you know, you're making such a compelling case, but we're so cynical. So I'm, I'm trying to think of the objections and have you kind of overcome them here. And the last one that kind of comes to mind, like I say, we've, we've kind of talked about it a little bit, is this kind of sense of, and this is so bad, but it's like, what's in it for me, right? It's, so should orthodontists be thinking, if I get involved in this, I'm making the profession better for like the next generation for people like 20 years from now? I mean, clearly, you know, if you join the AAO this year and get involved in some leadership, you know, you're not going to see like a, a change in your practice in the next like two to five years. So clearly that's not the timeline. So, you know, how should people think about this? I mean, you talked about giving more than you get. And I, I think that like, you're, you're like an amazing person that just has this kind of generous attitude. But, you know, what should people think that, you know, they're going to get out of it in terms of helping themselves or their practice or their profession? You know, how, how should we think about that? Well, I, I always kind of say that I feel like I have gotten more out of volunteering um, than I've given. And you know, I've got to meet the most amazing people. My staff always laugh because whenever like I have a patient that's traveling or going to school somewhere, they're like, oh yeah, Dr. Felty probably knows someone in that town that if you need an emergency, she'll call and, and you'll be fine. And I do feel like I've gotten this great group of, of mentors. And, you know, I, I don't know everything about orthodontics and I don't know everything about practicing a business, but on these different boards, I've met people and, you know, everyone has something that they're truly great at. And so, you know, in conversation, I'll find out about that. And then, you know, I'll be like, I have someone that I can call to say, Hey, you know, I'm trying to do this new thing that you were talking about last week and I need some help with it and I need to know how to do it. And so I do think it gives you an amazing network of people as well. Plus I think, you know, the more you get involved, the more hopefully that change can move faster. I do think that, you know, things move slowly and we do need to change that. And I think if we have more members that are being a bit more active and saying, hey, we're here to help because we want the change to move at a better speed than it has been. We can't just let it rely on the shoulders of these, you know, 10 or 20 people. So we're here to take some of that weight off and we want to see the change happen. Then change should be able to happen faster. But until people are kind of willing to get in there and do some of the work as well, then it kind of it does. It falls on the same people's shoulders and they're carrying on and they're doing it, but they're also, you know, having a family and managing their own businesses and managing their own practices too. So I, I do think that's a great goal is to say, hey, we want to see change and we want to see it change faster. And I think the more people that get involved and kind of push for that, the faster it will happen. Besides um, kind of advocacy and all this kind of legal wrangling on who should be doing your orthodontics, what do you think are the benefits that the AAO can or should provide to members? You know, what are, what are the things if, if that when you think about we could do stuff to, to benefit our members apart from, you know, fighting the, the clear aligner battle? Yeah, I, I think there's a ton of resources that the AO provides. And I feel like most members probably have no idea that, that they're there. Um, you know, the website is, it can feel cumbersome just because there's literally so much stuff in there and you can't really whittle it down any, any better than that. But 
you know, I think there it's kind of a little bit of everything. I mean, you can go and there's resources, which I know um, the nice part is a lot of the resources that are on there and the forms that are on there have all been vetted legally, which I think a lot of times, you know, we make forms for our office and we don't necessarily run them by a lawyer per se, but, you know, AO has in-house counsel that you can call if you have a question about something. Um, you know, they have an insurance tip line that you can call if you're having trouble with reimbursements. They have you know, a whole staff that's there and that's dedicated to help you. If you have, you know, hey, I want to plan a, you know, a local ortho meeting and I have no idea how to plan an event. You know, there's a woman there that does event planning. So I think the fact is that, you know, we're a little hesitant to pick up the phone, but if you want to pick up the phone and call, they can direct you to someone that can answer the questions that you have. And I think you'd be really surprised to see how much information is actually on that website. I think we, you know, right now, because of the hot topics that are out there, those are the things that members are focusing on. But I also think that there's a lot of other things going on at the AAO and there's a lot of other resources there for you. So there's more to it, but you have to spend a little bit of time looking through it and seeing what you can actually use. One thing that you have been involved in, and I think in as part of your role with this uh, council and new and younger members, is kind of trying to bridge this divide between uh, different generations of people in terms of how they think. And, and we read and hear a lot about millennials and, and uh, you know, kind of how they perhaps see the world differently. And uh, some of that's perhaps unfairly negative. And then, you know, what, tell me a little bit about kind of what your experience has been and specifically how you've you know, kind of tried to facilitate some of that in terms of uh, governance and then maybe a little bit about how that might apply to our own practices in terms of uh, staff and moms of patients who are now millennial moms. You know, what, what advice do you have uh, for people on that front? Yeah, so I, um, I was fortunate enough to give a, a lecture with Dan Keith, who's the chair of Conum at the AO Leadership Development Conference this past January, right before the midwinter meeting. And we gave a lecture on intergenerational uh, leadership. And obviously, this little conference was for people that were involved in leadership or hoping to get involved. And we talked a lot about the benefits of making groups or committees and boards more diverse. Um, and obviously, our lecture was focused mostly on on age diversity. But I think, you know, we see that in our practice, too, where we have millennials and we already have, you know, even younger generations coming into uh, the job field for us. And by 2020, we're going to have five generations potentially working together and they have various wants and needs when it comes to job benefits, work-life balance. And I think we have to understand that. And I think as we understand that for our office, it also helps to understand it for our patients because that's part of the driver for these direct-to-consumer companies, right? Is that they're offering something that people want and that's convenience and that's, you know, saving people time, which is a big big thing that millennials want and that Gen Z wants. And so as we get more patients of that demographic, whether it's the moms or the patients themselves, we have to see how do we affect that change in our own practice? How do we, you know, save people time? How do we become more convenient for them? Is it different hours? Is it being open, you know, later? And then also in terms of our staffing, looking at kind of what their wants are, you know, because a lot of younger generations really want, have a, a bigger commitment to work-life balance. So they may not be as excited about doing an event on a Saturday because they may feel like, hey, that's my day with my family. That's the day to go with my kids. And that's why I work, you know, Monday through Thursday. And so I think we have to kind of just reevaluate what we're offering in, in our offices to our staff and then also making sure that there is some team building because the staff has to recognize that to each other, they're going to work differently. And it doesn't mean one's lazy and it doesn't mean that one is more excited about something else. It's just they're going to have a different drive and they all have to recognize that 
they have different assets and different areas that they need to help each other out. I, it's interesting, you know, the millennial mindset or whatever it's called is kind of, you, you talked earlier about this when, you know, there's a new person that kind of comes into the scene and says, you know, why are we doing it that way? Why do we have to do it? Why can't we do it this way? And, and I think to a certain extent that really kind of encapsulates it. You know, the, the kind of more traditional, let's call it mindset is kind of like, that's the way it is and suck it up and deal with it. And I know that that is basically the reaction of a lot of people that aren't millennials when they deal with, and they're like, yeah, who doesn't want a work-life balance? Who doesn't want significance? Meanwhile, here in the real world, there's work to be done, so get to it, right? I mean, that's kind of the entrenched mindset. So, But I do think that, not that, that we have to necessarily cater to every whim of uh, every rising generation, but, you know, I do think that to, to remain relevant, uh, as, as you pointed out, you know, we do have to ask ourselves these questions and to say, is there a way to do this so that people, you know, can, can we can deliver on convenience, that we can deliver on an experience, that we can, you know, recognize people as individuals, that we can provide kind of some more meaning or, or some more value beyond this transaction than just, you know, just the braces or just the job. You know, I think what's behind this is all pretty great stuff. And it's a lot of times just our own cynicism that makes us kind of push back against it. Yeah. And if you look at, um, I think a really great example of this is in terms of donating. So if you look at different generations, you know, older generations are more likely to to write a check. They're more likely to say, you know, I had a family member affected by breast cancer, so I am going to write a check and support, you know, breast cancer research. But if you look at younger generations, they're more likely to get involved in something that they feel passionate about. So that's why like there's the Susan be Coleman race for a cure because they have people that want to do the all night walks and get and feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves and have that experience. And we talk about, you know, the experience that patients have when they're in our office. And so I think that that's something, you know, that people are looking for. They're looking for that experience and younger generations are going to look for that more personalized experience. And we're going to see that as becoming the norm and not the exception where they're going to want a personalized, you know, a more personalized uh, care and delivery and feel like, you know, they're kind of the unique one in a way. Um, and then in terms of, you know, volunteering, I think that applies in the same way. You know, people don't want to just be assigned a committee and be like, okay, here, you want to volunteer here, go do this. They want to have their skills used and they want to volunteer in something that they feel a little bit of passion for. And I always tell people, you know, when they say like, well, I don't know if I can, I can do it, or I don't know if I have the knowledge for it. I kind of just say, if you're passionate about it, that's literally the only requirement you need to volunteer because that's what we want. We talk about hiring staff that are passionate and saying, hey, we'll, we'll train them on the rest. And so we should be doing that same for volunteering. Hire someone who's passionate and who's engaged and train them on the rest. Train them how to volunteer or train them in the skill set that they need. But you hire for personality and we should be doing the same when we're recruiting for, for volunteering. This has just been a fantastic conversation. We're flying through the time here. I did want to, and we didn't talk about this before, so this is kind of on the spot. I did want to kind of get a sense from you, what are the things that you're working on in your practice? What are the things that you're excited about? What have you done in the last year uh, that you feel has been really meaningful or that's, that's made a difference for your patients or for your staff or for your clinical outcomes? Uh, kind of what's going on in your practice? Yeah, so we just did our first, uh, just, uh, our first Easter event yesterday. We had like kind of like an open event for the community and we had pictures with the Easter Bunny and face painting. And it was kind of the first time that we hosted something for our community. And so I think our staff was pretty excited about it. You know, we've done stuff where we donated and supported teams. 
you know, locally. And I think a lot of us do that. But, you know, I've been hearing more and more about trying to, you know, make that experience, you know, in the office and also to help engage my staff a little bit. I think, you know, we're looking at kind of going forward. My TC and I were just down at the Peniche course um, over our spring break. And I think, you know, we had a lot of good ideas there and trying to work toward, you know, doing more kind of same day start type thing. We don't do that really much here in the office. So it's something I'm kind of looking looking toward getting into a little bit more. And I think, uh, you know, hopefully getting a 3D printer. We have an in-house lab tech. So for us, it's theoretically not a huge jump. But I think getting a 3D printer and starting to do a little bit more there would be a really neat, neat thing to explore. When you think about your practice, what do you feel like occupies most of your time? Like, is it patients? Is it clinical outcomes? Is it technology? Is it staff? Like, what, what is it that kind of, would you say, you know, you're thinking about the most? I feel I'm probably like most people when, you know, the business side is what kind of like takes over most of your time or you're kind of always thinking about like, well, I got to like hire, you know, hire someone here. We have, we have a girl going for mat leave soon. And for, you know, in Canada, it's a year mat leave. And uh, so, you know, we got to get someone in for a year. It's not just for a couple of weeks. And, um, you know, so I feel like there's always something on the business side or, you know, how can I market better? I've been trying to do better on our like Instagram. I, I don't even have Instagram <laughs> personally. So that was like a whole new thing that my staff had to show me. And so, yeah, it's kind of like, I feel like that stuff, you know, the clinic stuff, I go to a meeting and I go to, you know, some great CE and I come back and I'm excited about it. And, and I feel like I can kind of work that in almost right away. But it's the kind of bigger picture stuff that I always feel I, I'm a little bit more hesitant about where I'm like, ah, what kind of marketing do we want to do? Or what kind of contest do we want to do? Or how am I going to, you know, rewrite my employee manual and all that kind of stuff. I just feel like on the weekend, I have this to-do list that's always, you know, so long. For me, it's the team. It's, it's, I feel like we're, we're working on systems constantly. We're working on clinical constantly. Those things seem to work themselves out. But, uh, you know, I feel like I always have so much to learn about leadership and, you know, motivation. And, and, and your guys is a little bit different because you actually have two people wearing the boss hat. But, you know, I, I think that, that managing, uh, and we, we have an amazing team right now. They're, they're so great, but it's, you know, it's a little bit like that perfect recipe. And I feel like I'm kind of standing over it, stirring the soup, trying to make sure all the recipes, all the, all the ingredients stay in balance and, and, and no, nothing gets too out of whack. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I mean, we do, we have a, we have a great group here that, you know, they help Peter and I out a lot. You know, the few times that we've had to let someone go, um, you know, it's, it's hard. It's really hard on us too. And I always feel that, you know, I need to take ownership of that, that I wasn't the best leader that I couldn't have been. And that's part of the reason why that they weren't a good fit was not just on them. You know, it's, it's on me too. And that's where, that's the stuff you don't learn in dental school. You know, we learn how to move teeth. We learn how to fix bites, but we don't really learn how to manage people. And in a way you kind of get tossed into it and you're learning as you go and we're going to make mistakes. And we, you know, I own up to those, but it's something that I feel like that's an area that I have to keep learning and keep, you know, moving forward with. If you're not looking back and like at situations and seeing where you like totally screwed up, then you've got like a big problem, I think, you know, like if you've got like a reason why every like staff issue was someone else's fault and you can't see your own enroll, like in, involvement in the problem, like you need like yeah. serious help because I, I feel like that's how I am. I, I think back on a lot of things and I, I realize, you know, that, that I did it wrong. And I, I even did a blog post about this once. Like I could just say, you know, that I, that I, I see it. I understand what the mistake was. And part of the benefit of that is that you realize like, I, I'm not going to do that again. Right. I'm not going to like interact in that way or say it this way or, 
um, not really understand where someone else is coming from. So that's something that I feel like, you know, luckily I do feel my, my huge accumulation of mistakes that I have cataloged now uh, makes me feel, the fact that I can recognize them makes me feel like I'm making progress. Maybe I'm not, but I, at least I can identify the, the errors. Yeah. Well, and hopefully from each of those mistakes, then you have something that, you know, you can take away from and say, okay, well, the next time we're doing this differently and we've kind of solved that mistake in a way going forward. Yep. Yep. All right, Trista, we're going to jump in, uh, finish up here with our Express 8. Uh, we're going to ask you eight questions and get some quick answers. How does that sound? Sounds good. What is your go-to treatment for full-step class twos? So I feel like I'm kind of all, all over the place here. We do a fair amount of phase one, and so we'll use twin block. Um, I will pull out a headgear. People, I know it seems like super taboo nowadays, but um, I actually have some patients that love the fact that they don't have to take it to school. It's not in their mouth all day, and they are fine. Like, hey, I just got to sleep with it. Perfect. And then we've been doing a little bit more carrier recently, but I am light early elastics for most of my cases. What's your standard retention protocol? We do upper and lower hollies and we use a clear bow on our uppers. So they're really nice and aesthetic. Who are your role models or your mentors? Ah, yeah, I've had some really great um, mentors. I think my very first mentor was my swim uh, club coach, Keitro Yoshida. And he taught me a lot about big picture thinking and teamwork, which is difficult because swimming is not a sport you would think of teamwork. But he taught me that his famous quote that he like drilled into me every day was success is a journey, not a destination. And I think that's kind of been a path I've, I've taken through life. And I think, um, in terms of orthodontics, you know, my, my orthodontist, Dr. Robert Bryan, who did my teeth and had to be peppered with questions like a thousand times at every appointment, uh, was great at kind of showing me the profession. And, um, and I think currently, uh, Dr. Norm Nagel, who is the PCSO trustee to the board, is an amazing role model for me. He's had a career full of volunteering. I mean, it's just amazing what he's done. And the fact that, you know, at this stage of his his career, he's still so passionate about the profession and he's not, and I will say it's about all the board of trustees members. They are not like set in their ways. They are very open to change and and wanting change. So I think he's been a a really great example for me of kind of where I hope my career takes me. What's your favorite orthodontic product or instrument? Something you wouldn't want to practice without. I use this one little instrument from Orthoply. I don't even know technically what it's called, but I use it every single day. It's one of their little instruments that you can customize the ends on. So we have like a ligature director on one end and then the other end, it looks like a 90 degree bend. So it's just awesome because we use it to take elastics and stuff off of, but it's not sharp like a scaler and doesn't bend like an explorer tip, but it's something super simple, but it's on every single tray and we use it on every single patient. So yes, this, when I wrote this question like a year and a half ago, I was hoping that someone had some weird little instrument that they were using that no one else was using. <laughs> so explain it to me. It's like, it comes up straight and then it like takes like a 90 degree bend. Yeah. It's just, I'll post a picture on the, on the Facebook group too. But it, yeah, it's just a 90 degree run. It's nice and short. So it doesn't, it has like a stiffness to it. So it's really nice for like taking, you know, the O ties off or the power chain off because I find, you know, with a scaler, it just cuts it. Right. And then if you're using like your Explorer tip, it's so like bendy and it doesn't really have much strength to it. So yeah, we use it and I use it for positioning brackets as well. So yeah, I mean, that's like I said, it's on every single tray. Yeah, it's just super simple. We'll definitely post that in the Facebook group. That's cool. What's the best vacation you've ever taken? Oh, I think like any vacation with my kids right now is just awesome because they just get so pumped about everything. They're such awesome little travelers because I'm from Pennsylvania. So they've been on, you know, six hour plane rides 
pretty much from like three weeks on. So they, they do great. And they're always just so pumped every time they see something new. But I think in terms of locations, I did a month long externship when I was in residency over in Israel at the Hadassah University. And it wasn't a place that was necessarily like on my to go places. And it was incredible. I thought Israel was beautiful. It had so much to see. And I got to tour around the country because the residents were amazing and they took me everywhere and they kind of took me under their wing and they were a great group. They practiced their whole residency program in English while I was there because I didn't speak any Hebrew. So yeah, it was (laughs) an amazing experience. That's awesome. That's awesome. I've, I've been to Israel and it is a really, really fantastic place. What's one great book you've read recently? Oh man, I haven't read, I normally read a lot and I haven't read, um, recently too much. I've been doing more podcasts. Okay, well, give a, give us a podcast or two that you're listening to. Oh, you the I just did the Theranos podcast, the Dropout. Okay, that one's a good one. Um, but yeah, and then I like like true crime. So there's one I was just <laughs> listening to, like Over My Dead Body was good. But yeah, I mean, pretty much anything, just kind of entertainment. So I've listened to almost all the Elevate Orthodontic podcast episodes. So yeah, awesome, awesome. What bracket system are you currently using? I use Damon Q2. And what's one area of orthodontics that you want to learn more about in 2019? So I think the 3D printing, I think that's our kind of our next purchase and then getting our in-house lab tech to kind of work with the printer. I think that'll be a little bit out of her wheelhouse because, you know, she's so into, you know, the hand skills of, of making things. But I think trying to get her up to speed on that technology and then start incorporating ways that that can make our practice more efficient for our patients would be neat. Awesome. Trista, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, It's been a blast chatting and uh, I think we've covered a lot of really uh, interesting topics and I appreciate your unique perspective on them. If people want to get a hold of you, if they've got questions about volunteering, about, uh, you know, organized orthodontics, what's the best way to reach you? Yeah, you can reach me via email. It's just trista.felty at gmail.com or you can message me on, on Facebook. But yeah, I'm here happy to answer any questions that anyone has. Perfect, perfect. Well, thank you again. This, Like I say, this has been fantastic and uh, have a great night. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode. 